This will probably be our last message on biblical worship and what we have been aiming toward being able to discern, what what I'm hoping I've been able to help you begin to discern anyways, is that biblical worship is regulated. Worship is regulated by Scripture. And one of the things we got to observe last week in a couple of the scripture references that we were looking at. Um, When men render worship, when men serve, when, when, when men act, even in a way that they have thought would be helpful or pleasing to the Lord, of their own accord, of their own impulses, of their own wisdom, when they do this, if it actually is not a, an action or a, a, a service or a worship that has come from God's words, we've begun to see anyways that they suffer for their innovation. And in some cases, they will even die for their innovations. In your handout, you'll see the, the second uh, London Baptist Confession 1689, chapter 22 and paragraph 1 written in your handout here. And that's what's written above my head here. This is a paragraph out of the confession. I wanted to read this to you. It says, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. The acceptable way of worshiping God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. In the two examples we got to look at last week, there were two Old Testament examples we had considered. We did look at a family in the tribe of priests and I pulled this slide up so you could see this. The two men we were considering last week out of Leviticus chapter 9 and 10 were Nadab and Abihu. You will see here they are immediate descendants of Aaron. Okay? Immediate, as in sons of Aaron. Who is Aaron? The high priest of the nation of Israel, brother of Moses. I wanted you to get some sense of the rank of these men. Who are they in the, in, in the strata and, and in the importance of the nation of Israel, the sons of the high priest? They are really top ranking type of people in their, we will call it a theocratic nation, a, a, a nation whose both government and religion are bound up into one governing body. These men, Nadab and Abihu, offered uh, what the scripture called profane fire in uh, Leviticus 10.1. After Aaron and Moses made the sacrifice, the sacrifice is consumed by a, a, a supernatural, miraculous fire taking the sacrifice 
And then Nadab and Abihu brought their censers, they brought their, their incense burning devices and, and brought them to wave the burning incense before the Lord. And do you remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu as they brought this portion of the offering? This The, the incense is, of course, to, to represent prayer and, and a fragrant offering being brought before God. What happened to Nadab and Abihu? They were put to death. Not by any men. God killed them. God killed them. Now, these are potentially number three and four highest ranking religious people in the nation killed for bringing incense before the Lord. Why? God did not instruct it. They, they presumed that they would just do this thing in honor and reverence to the Lord. Did they make up the idea of the censer? No. Did they make up the idea of incense? No. They did it in their way with existing tools. They did it in their time. They did it in their priority. And God took their lives. The other example we had considered last week was out of 1 Samuel chapter 15. And it was about... Saul, King Saul. And as you recall, Saul had been used to defeat the enemy nation. I believe it was Amalek. Amalek is defeated in a war and the king. Now, again, think of the rank of the person in the theocratic nation. Okay, Beneath high priest and then priests who help to, to serve. Where does king fit in this ranking? In some ways, he fits alongside the high priest, but he is he's more a civil leader than he is a religious leader, but he doesn't stop being a religious leader as a king of the religious nation Israel. And so what does the king do? After defeating this nation, he decides that instead of killing all of the animals and all of the people, which is what he was instructed to do by the prophet, instead of killing them, he says, you know, I'm going to keep the nicest of these things, the animals, some of the stuff that would seem to be a good offering to bring, to, and I'm going to offer these things to the Lord. Now, what happened to Saul? What happened to the king for making this innovative addition to worship? He lost the kingdom. And he even lost the blessing. Normally, King Ness is something that stays in the family line for generations. So not only did he lose the throne, he also lost the following generations of blessing to his family. He was removed from that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6 is, is a place where you need to remember that points you, it reminds you, don't forget that these things like Nadab and Abihu, these men like Saul, these Old Testament occurrences are here to warn you. They're not isolated from us because we live thousands of years later. It's very tempting for you and I to think, wow, God used to be pretty easily upset about things that he didn't like. But now, now people like to say we live in this age of grace and God just doesn't get quite so upset anymore. Don't make that mistake. I'll give you some uh, good meat to chew on in that example as well here shortly. We will have a look at that. If you look at 
uh, Matthew chapter 15. I don't believe we looked at this one last week. This was an interesting uh, occurrence of a conflict between the Lord Jesus and, and, and a criticism of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are, are the leading uh, opinions still in this theocratic culture. And the Pharisees ask this question, 15, Matthew 15, chapter 2. They accuse the disciples of not being quite spiritual enough, not quite um, to the standard that they believe uh, good followers of God should be. So Matthew 5, 2, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Why do those people who are following you, Jesus, not hold the standard that was set by the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Obviously, this was something that had become embedded in their culture at this time. And, and more likely than not, most of the people would do this because they felt it was a mark of their of, of, of their conformity and of their acceptability before God. They would wash their hands. It was a tradition that if they didn't do it before they ate the bread, they would be kind of considered lower class, especially spiritually. They would be considered having been fallen short spiritually. Verse 3, he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress? Transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition. So Jesus, interestingly, doesn't doesn't answer the question as directly as you might have imagined. In other words, he doesn't actually speak about washing hands. He actually answers the question by asking another question. And he says, in essence, your tradition, your tradition is invention. The thing that you do, or in other words, why do you transgress because of your tradition. So is he referring to the tradition of hand washing? I believe he is indirectly, but he actually moves forward into a different tradition in this passage about the, the tradition of Korban. The Korban passage was, is the children of a little bit of an older person like Elois under their culture were obligated to take care of their mother when they were getting a little bit older. But this tradition had, had come up in this day of the Lord Jesus and the child of this person would say, the thing that I would have uh, cared for my mother with, this, this offering that I would have cared for her with, I now consider to be an offering to God. And they called it Korban. And so this was a newer uh, religious tradition. In other words, this thing I'm giving to God. It's a sacrifice. It's, it's an offering made unto the Lord. And, and obviously that is meant to, to pull on the strings of, of those who he heard and knew about this tradition. Wow, they're, they're devoted to our faith. They're devoted to our God. They're doing this thing where, you know, that we can tell they would have loved to take care of their mother, but instead they're even giving it to a greater purpose and offering it to God. And the Lord Jesus simply asked this question, why do you transgress the commandments by your tradition. 
Why is the written thing ignored because of the thing that you thought better? Why is the written thing ignored instead of the thing that you thought better? We're learning that worship and service from invention or from innovation is unacceptable. Service, worship, the derives from tradition or innovation or human wisdom is unacceptable. God has regulated worship. And we've looked at a small number of God's examples to us of him actually killing people for their innovations in this regard. This uh, passage here in Jeremiah chapter 7 is an interesting verse, a very similar, this is worded at least three times in the book of Jeremiah, almost this exact quotation. It says, And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. The most important aspect of this reference as God charges Israel with their, with their departure from him, this offering of the children is a, 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 a high act of religious devotion. It is a, an extreme example of religious Devotion, and, and I don't know if any of us can get into the mind of a person who, who is offering their children in an offering to their God. I, I don't know that any of us can identify and go, man, there, there is a really good example of a follower of God there. However, that is the, the spirit that dominated the idolatrous people in this age and And how does God uh, describe their offense? How does he identify their offense? It's not, oh, this is such a terrible and horrible offensive thing. What God's word says in the passage here is that I never commanded you to do it. How do you know it's not right? I never commanded you to do it. This is the essence of what we are learning about Biblical worship. Biblical worship is regulated. Biblical life is regulated. Do you remember the man named Uzzah? Uzzah was the man who was a probably an immediate relative of Abinadab, who was in charge of the ark before the ark was brought back to Jerusalem under King David. It was in a it was in another village. And they had to transport the ark from that village into Jerusalem when they had finally rebuilt a a tabernacle and they were establishing Jerusalem there. And as they were transporting the ark back to Jerusalem, Uzzah was the one walking next to the cart that had the ark on it. And the cart hit something, destabilized the ark a little bit, and Uzzah thought, man, this is the ark of God. And, and, and it can't fall off the cart. He held out his hand to stabilize the ark. And what happened to Uzzah? He was killed. He was killed. How was the ark supposed to be moved? It was supposed to be moved by the poles. 
that were in the sides of the ark. Now, those things aren't even mentioned in the context of where we see Uzzah dying. We just see Uzzah seeing the cart becoming unstable. He holds out his hand to stabilize it, and he's put to death. Uzzah didn't die because he cared about the ark. Uzzah died because he did not act according to what had been revealed. The only way to move the ark was by a Levite with the poles. He might not have even known that. He didn't make any reference. The the scripture's a little bit quiet in terms of those details. But the fact is, as you can see, in his attempt to serve God, he actually was put to death because he acted in a way that God had not commanded him. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 2. We're going to spend some time looking at a passage here in Colossians chapter 2. What we're going to find here is that human wisdom opposes Christ. Human wisdom opposes Christ. So what we're going to read here from verse 6, Colossians 2 verse 6. I want you to see that receiving Christ, we can put it in another way, having been born again, If you've been born again, then you are separated from the principles of the world. Receiving Christ separates you from the principles of the world. So you either have someone who is separated unto Christ from the world, or you are acting and behaving in your human manners, in your human wisdoms, and you are opposing him. These two things, opposing Christ by the world's wisdom or separated unto Christ by being born again and and not being following the principles of the world. So read with me from verse 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Walk. Walk in these passages in the epistles in particular often are, are indicative of how you live your life. Walking with Christ means how do you live your life as a Christian walk, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So there's a beware here and you're being taught to consider two different things. Beware, philosophy, empty deceit, tradition of men, basic principles of the world versus Christ. Beware that. Now go all the way down to verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. Another way you could say that phrase there is the word will worship. That is your willed worship or your conceived worship, will worship, or another phrase could be self-imposed piety. So these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, or self-imposed piety, false humility, 
neglect of the body, but are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, one of the things that will be helpful for you here now is this phrase here, indulgence of the flesh. And you and I, considering Christian men and women, are actually quite um, aware of the difference between the flesh and the spirit. So the indulgence of the flesh in this sense is the indulgence of something that's opposed to the spirit. So indulging the flesh has to do with carnality or a person's worldliness. Indulgence of the flesh has to do with um, departing from or ignoring walking in the spirit. Okay, those are the two things contrasting here. Self-imposed religion and false humility or what the first word is here is a wisdom. So there's a kind of wisdom, the world's wisdom, let's say. There's, there's a kind of wisdom here that cannot succeed and does not succeed in spiritualizing the flesh. In other words, these things that men try to put onto the flesh, the wisdom, the traditions of men, the philosophy, they can't actually make a person more spiritual. They seem like they can't, but they are of no effect in, how does he end the phrase, they are of no value at the end of verse 23 against the indulgence of the flesh. They, they cannot actually take that flesh and make it spiritual. So verse 6 here establishes a principle that we are working on trying to understand. And it says, understand, know, and remember how you learned Christ. They're reminded, walk in Him, rooted in Him, walk in Him, rooted in Him, built up in Him, established in the faith. So you walk with Christ by rooting yourself in Christ as he is being rooted in you. Now this is interesting. When it says rooted in him, there's a kind of a special characteristic of this verb. It's called the middle voice. The middle voice verb means that there is a person being acted on and that person is also acting back. Being rooted in, if, if I am being rooted in, that means I am digging my root down into Christ and Christ is also stretching his root down into me. So when we're looking at a, a verb like this, it's not happening to you totally passively, as in the Lord just putting my root in him. It is something that has a, a bit of mutuality to it. I am exercising my, my need to be in and to f- be fed by Christ as he is also rooting himself in me. And then we see that they are walking in him rooted, built up and established in the faith. An important thing for us to see here is that in the faith, 
is actually three separate words in Greek. And the reason I'm taking you to the, the Greek here is because the, the definite article here is in front of the word faith. The faith. In other words, it's not generic faith. It's not general, random faith. It's the faith in the original language here. So in other words, when the apostle is explaining this to the people in Corinth, rooted and established in the faith, it's very objectively clear what it is he's talking about that you are rooted and established in. The faith that contrasts with those other things that come a tiny bit further down in the verse. Okay, He's trying to make sure that you get this. Very similar, I think, to the concept being taught to us in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's, that's Romans 12 way of saying being rooted and established in Christ. Okay, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Non-biblical worship is humanly reasonable. But Paul is adamant that unless the life flows from the root, it's worthless. I grabbed a couple of pictures of this kind of scene because this is a person who is in a a church or who is in some place that has been designed for quote-unquote worship. And so what we see there... Um, actually kind of becomes attractive to some people. The candlelight kind of gives a feeling of spirituality to it. Um, Sometimes the way that these rooms or places are designed or or set up, when when you come into it, it appeals to your eyes. It'll often appeal to your nose because there is, is potentially some smell to these candles. And the places where you would sit and Everything about this place appeals to your senses. It makes you feel spiritual. And so that adds to your sense that this is, this is a really good spiritual kind of worship that we're going to be doing in this place. So when Paul is introducing this subject here in Colossians chapter 2 and he's he's speaking about the Christians need to be rooted in Christ as you were taught and then he warns us of things that will um, give the appearance of helping us against the indulgences of the flesh For you and I, in this century, this is a small idea of what we're looking at here. Because this seems like a good place to worship. When we're looking at our verse here, I I did write down in English here the the three words where, where we see rooted and established in the faith. In other words, the things you and I practice, the things you and I think on, the way you and I would go about worshiping biblically have got to come from the faith. Right? That's what, that's what he's teaching us here. So, are you, I don't know the number of you's in here, but the, what I'm saying is each one of you individually, one by one, are you learning and growing in your knowledge and worship in the faith? Is that what you're about? 
Are you practicing that? Because that's one of the first things that should occur to us when you and I would read this passage in our own devotions. Or while you're listening to me preach this message. It's something for you to realize that I have been told here, I've been instructed here to be rooted in Christ. Are you learning the faith? Where is your faith being stretched and challenged as you leave the terms and the thoughts and ideas of the world? As you leave those things and you go more and more deeply into Christ, where is your faith being stretched and how do you see your progress over the last year or so of being a Christian? Are you seeing how the Lord is challenging some of your preconceptions about what the world and what your natural wisdom knows versus what we are learning in His Word? If we look a little bit further here in uh, Colossians, we're going to look at a couple words down in chapter 3. Chapter 3, I'm going to read to you verses uh, 9 and 10. So he's speaking about a a Christian's life. Where is our spiritual life? Where are our roots? Look at 3, 9, and 10. Actually, I'll start at 8. But now ye also put off all these. Put them off. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Renewed after the image of him that created him. That is Christ. Being renewed means the old is falling off, like like the peeling skin of a snake or a lizard. And putting on Christ is who you are in the process of growing in your knowledge of in your daily devotions or in your coming and listening to preaching. You're putting on Christ is leaving off these other things. This is what is meant up here in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 7. Being established in the faith as you have been taught. Your faith, one by one, is the faith that Paul taught to those Christians at their conversion. Your faith is the faith that must be according to the faith that has been taught by the apostles. Can you see, can you say that Scripture itself is forming your life and your worship? Is preaching changing your mind and your life? Is your Bible reading renewing knowledge after the image of Him? 2 Timothy 3.16 is extremely insightful to us. 2 Timothy 3.16 You see, when we look at these little scenes of what our culture has taught us to understand as spiritual. This is a little room that 
people make for a special place of worship or a retreat place for worship. And by and large, people would rather be in those fancy spiritual places than in this place. Our eyes and our minds have learned to attach feelings to what feels like good worship, to what seems like a better place to worship than another place based strictly on what you could see with your eyes. You, you don't want to go have a, a prayer retreat in this in this little room here. You want to be in that in that big beautiful room with candles. But look at Second Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. All graphe. All of the words of the law and the prophets, all scripture is given by inspiration. Theopneustos. Literally, God breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped for every good work and complete are everything. So in other words, that that doesn't mean that the scripture is a, a supplemental manual for the hard parts of the Christian life or for the deep parts of the Christian life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 are teaching you that the scripture is God-breathed. The scripture is the thing breathed out by God. The scripture is how you will be able to profit or grow or benefit in any area, including reproof, Correction, instruction in righteousness. So if you ignore this truth, if you ignore this truth, then you will be satisfied with your own worldly ways and with your own worldly wisdom. And I don't say that to demean you. When I say you have worldly ways and worldly wisdom, I'm not saying that to criticize you or to try to make you feel like a second class Christian. But that is what is competing with the Spirit. You cannot help but have worldly wisdom. You you cannot help but be influenced by the traditions and the wisdom of this world. It's what it means to be a man. And so Paul is simply helping us, teaching us how we learn to live the Christian life. Until you learn to put off these things and then put on Christ, you will be carnal. So we're going to talk for a moment or two about um, corporate and private worship. I'm going to give you a list of some words and some verses we're going to look at. What is biblical worship actually? What is it made of? How do we come to know it? It is, again, a popular belief that inside the realm of the new covenant, which is where you and I live on this side of the cross, that we live in an age of grace where the religious rules and and religious guidelines and God's 
uh, ordinances for worship and for Christian life are not like they were under the old covenant. It's very easy for us to think this way because many theologians paint this picture for us nowadays. But I, I thought of this uh, amazing example to, to challenge this idea. Acts chapter 5. You guys remember what's in Acts chapter 5? The story of Ananias and Sapphira is here in in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira are here in 5. I'm just going to read to you the first five verses. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it brought a certain part, laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, or when you had it, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in thine own power? You were in charge of it when you sold it. Why hast thou conceived this thing in your heart? Thou hast not lied to men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. I wanted to read that to you because it would be very easy for us to read that under the Old Covenant and see a man disobeying God, to see see a man doing this devious act of worship and get killed for it. That seems to fit in the likes of Adab and Abihu. But this is a New Testament man. A New Testament man brings an offering to the Lord here. He brings a gift to the Lord. But there were things going on in his heart where he did not do it in an upright way. He did it in his own way. He he wanted to do something that he thought would be pleasing to God and he wanted to do it in a way where he would also get some accolades from his peers. God killed him. God killed this man under the new covenant because he added this little innovation to his worship. I believe it's a very sobering Illustration here. Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll start looking at some New Testament instruction of what biblical worship actually is. Matthew chapter 6 gives us instruction on prayer. There are two kinds of prayer taking place in this passage, you pray in your room in secret instead of praying in a way where you attract attention to yourself and maybe make a name for yourself as being an eloquent prayer or something along those lines. This is in verses 9 to 13 of Matthew chapter 6. You don't pray with what the scripture calls vain repetition or chanting repetition. You don't pray like that. So you pray in private. 
There's also a number of references. If we have time, we'll look at these other references. But there is um, many examples of corporate prayer where Christians gathered together are praying together. We'll look at one or two of those. John 2.14 and Matthew 21.13. I'm not going to ask you to turn there. John 2.14 and Matthew 21.13 are two places where the Lord Jesus referred to the temple as being a house of prayer. So when he came to Jerusalem, the place where people were to go and pray to God actually had been put to an alternate use and was being used more for profiteering and money-making. And he says, why have you made my father's house a marketplace? And so we see the priority of prayer in Matthew 6. The Lord Jesus also taught his disciples how to pray in some particularity. And he made these comments in John 2 and Matthew 21. His father's house is a house of prayer. I'll show you another example in Acts 1, 12 to 14. Another example of where the disciples, where Christians give attention to prayer. Acts 1, 12. Then returned they into Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, the Sabbath day's journey. Verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Supplication means you're making requests of God. They continued in one accord with prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. We will see some other examples here of prayer, but Christian worship always includes prayer. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is a very good place for us to to practice a framework for prayer. For you to learn elements of praise and confession and supplication and intercession. All of these elements are included in Matthew chapter 6. We can learn to pray from the apostles Paul has many examples early in the epistles, in the early words of the epistles where we can read his prayers and learn how to thank the Lord, learn how to intercede with the Lord. 2 Timothy 4.2 refers to preaching. 2 Timothy 4.2 A Christian's attention... Two, preaching as part of their worship is another aspect of worship we want to make sure we know. Second Timothy 4.2 The young pastor is taught preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now, obviously this passage is speaking to the preacher, Timothy. What does it say to the congregation? Congregation. Be under preaching. One of the constant duties of the pastor is to preach. Now, why did God give a pastor to a church? Why does God give a shepherd to a church? Ephesians 4. He gave, Christ gave, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to the church, to the congregation for the equipping of the saints for works of service. What is your commitment to being under preaching of your local congregation and of preaching you can listen to during the week when you when you listen to maybe Peter Masters on, on Sermon Audio, when you listen to a, a preacher that you know is a good and faithful preacher through messages that you can download and listen to during the week. This is part of a, a Christian's devotional life. It's part of his worship. It's part of his service. Acts 2.40. Go with me to Acts 2.40. This is the end of a sermon in the book of Acts. Verse 40 says, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Now look what happens. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. So what we see, what we see about those who have been converted, actually there's numerous places, we'll look at one or two more maybe before we're done, but baptism, baptism is uh, an act of Christian devotion that Christians always participate in. The baptism. But what do these ones do after they're converted? It says they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which means the teaching of the apostles, and fellowship. That's corporate fellowship. Once they're converted, they're committed to to Christian fellowship. They're committed to breaking of bread, which is the communion supper. They take communion together. This is biblical worship and prayers. And we see again a reference to prayer being a regular life of, of Christian devotion. Let's look at First uh, Timothy 4. Timothy 4 and verse 13. Till I come, give attendance to reading, 
to exhortation, to doctrine. There's another reference there, very particularly to reading, reading in the scriptures. Christians are devoted, they're, they're committed to consistent and reading God's word. Let me give you just a few closing thoughts here. And we'll go back to one or two more of these. There's an important thing for us to look at next week. I want to remind you that worship is not a mood. Worship is not a mood. Worship is not aesthetic. What that means is spiritual feeling or appealing to your senses. When 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 someone has aesthetic taste, you like what they can do with with visuals or with sounds or with colors. Sound, color, smell are aesthetics. Worship is not aesthetics. That's why I put that little picture of a black and white room up there with a with a nasty mattress. It's like I don't I don't want to go in there and, and pray. That doesn't look comfortable. That doesn't look nice. It wouldn't get me in the mood to worship. Worship is not a mood. Worship is words. It is adoration. It is submission. It is biblically articulate praise. That is praising him with truth from his word. It is supplication. Praying for the things we need and depend on him for. Thanking him daily for your daily bread is a, is a, is a worshipful thing for you to do. Or thank you, you gave me my daily bread today. Thankfulness. Intercession. For your church family, for your state, and for the sick and the weak, and for the lost. We do all these things according to the words of God's revelation in the Spirit. You remember the words when, when the Lord Jesus spoke to the woman in Samaria? This really gives you an important principle to understand real biblical worship. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now many people do it with one or the other. You are laboring to bring the two things together. In the spirit means at least in part what we were referring to a moment ago. What has no power against the flesh? What has no power against the indulgences of the flesh? Tradition, wisdom, worldly ways. They have no power against the flesh. What what do we want instead of the flesh? Spirit. We want to know God in spirit and in truth. We want to love God in spirit and in truth. And so when we reflect back to God our thanks, when we reflect to God our requests, our supplications. There are things we know men need according to his word. There are intercessions we know we must intercede according to his word. It's important for us to 
Remember, we need to avoid, we need to resist the temptation to become a lover of the sensual. Most worship music today is sensual. It makes you feel good. That doesn't make it worship. Worship is words. Worship is truth. Reflected, spoken, preached in the power of the Spirit. You are not by nature a heavenly creature. And this is why it's hard to learn to be a biblical worshiper. You are not a heavenly creature. You were born in this world. You were born with a world in you. And so as we walk this walk with Christ, we are looking to Him to know and understand what it means to walk and serve and worship in the Spirit. Let's pray together and then we'll sing the doxology. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the warnings of your word. I thank you for opening my own eyes, Lord, to the warnings of your word. And I pray for your help as we learn to walk with you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your your mercies. Thank you for your patience to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's stand and we'll sing the doxology together.